It's 4.15 p.m. I am tucked into a closet, surrounded by pillows, trying for the third time to get this, not down on paper, but down in voice, trying to put my thoughts into, into words. You're listening to the 24-Hour Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Magdalene Zinke. a returning listener, thank you for your patience. If you're a new listener, welcome. Welcome to the little auditorium of my brain. Oh, it's been a minute. It's been a summer. It's been a pandemic. It is still a pandemic. That's hard. It's a lot of other things too. A lot going on at once and I know I'm not the only one feeling that. It's early October 2022 if you're listening in real time, or to put a stamp on it, if you're not listening in real time. And time. Yeah, time is an interesting thing. It certainly felt very unstable for me in the last several years, like almost like too much happening at once and not enough happening at once, or like, I don't know, I'm not really sure what to make of it. I have a lot of trouble hanging on to the days of the week, and I thought that that would clear up once my kids started school and I had that sort of guiding rhythm. No. No, if anything, it's worse. Just really, yeah. I don't know. That's not why I'm here. That's not what I want to talk about. Though it does lead us gently into that, because I have been searching for ways to stabilize myself in this in this era of so much all at once. And I was just talking to my friend Angela about behaviors that we want to change, especially behaviors that seemed kind of almost (laughs) cute and fun and, you know, a little naughty when the pandemic was something that was going to last for six weeks or, you know, or like a year, like a year and a half, and then pushing into two and a half years, it's like, okay, I I may have gotten into some habits that I'm not especially crazy about. Habits that aren't supporting me. And at least from what I am encountering of the internet, there is increasing, there's more talk about finding habits that are better supportive of ourselves and the selves that we want to be, the selves that we want to grow into. And I have noticed in myself that when I am not actively reaching for those habits, that there are other habits that creep in. I'm in this weird tension at the moment between not wanting to, I mean, truly it's not wanting to sit down and watch TV and movies, which is something that used to bring me a lot of joy. Um, but I'm struggling to sit down with it now. And what's happening instead is that I'm doom scrolling. I'm going through, you know, just endless flipping through Instagram and Facebook and, you know, not even really participating often, just like the thumb going, scroll, 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 as if something magic is going to happen. 
and it's not giving the dopamine hits that it used to. And so what I've found myself doing is, and I'm not a, a true crime person. Occasionally, you know, I really enjoyed serial because of the quality of the storytelling and the method of the storytelling. And I found, you know, I found odd stuff here and there that I'm drawn to because of how it's made, not what the content is. So I don't, I don't really get the appeal of true crime, or at least I thought I didn't until recently when I found myself, well, when I found that my, the news app on my phone was suggesting more and more stories about awful things happening to people and not big stories, but like, you know, like finding myself getting into the tragedies of like rural Nebraska Things that don't affect me, you know, awful things happening to children, gruesome car accidents, murders, these sort of things, and like local news stories. And I was I was getting more and more of them and I was clicking on them and, and finding myself just like getting, I don't know if that's the dopamine hit, but it was certainly something like the the pull into someone else's tragedy. And I found myself taking that on and becoming increasingly snappish with the real life people around me because I was carrying all this weight and had no more room for them. No more room, honestly, for myself. And I'm saying this like it, you know, like it's happened in the past, but it just, it happened this morning, which, you know, technically is the past, but, you know, the very, the comparative near past. So I've been trying to be conscious of that and trying to find other ways to get that that little burst of aliveness, that little burst of feeling. And when I remember to go out into the garden or if I allow myself the time to really play with flowers, I can find that in the really tangible stuff. I can sometimes find it in cooking. Sometimes. I can find it in writing, if I'm, you know, if I have a pen and paper, but, you know, often that's falling into the same category as TV and movies of, of something that, something that I have a sort of guilt over doing. So it's not even, it's not like a guilty pleasure. It's like the guilt of pleasure. Like I should somehow be paying more attention to the world around me, even though it feels like too much. So I'm retreating away from the world around me. And, and you can see how a cycle begins to form there. And part of the reason that I'm wanting to back away from gruesome news stories is that those are not my stories to tell. And while I can find inspiration from them, if I'm getting all of my emotional hits from other people's stuff, I find myself less able to honestly interpret the things in my life that need interpreting and to use my artistic powers to, to talk about the things that I can talk about with authenticity and the vulnerability that comes with authenticity. So I, I've been thinking a lot about our culture's love of true crime and also superhero movies and and kind of what that says about us 
these stories that highlight the big moments, but in some ways refuse to look at the cost. I'm just thinking of some of the big fight scenes in Marvel movies where, you know, where like entire city blocks are just decimated, you know, or or thinking of stories recently of the was it Dahmer on Netflix where the victims' families and even the, even people who were just living in Milwaukee, like friends and family who were adults in Milwaukee at that time feeling re-traumatized by this. And like, what is the point? What is What are we doing with that? What are we giving our culture when those are the kind of stories that we're telling? And what does that say to us? What does that say about us as a culture? in what we value. There are plenty of other people who have gone deeper into this line of thinking that I'm, than I'm going to go here today because, um, well, because that's not my area of expertise and that's not been my line of thinking, but it has led my line of thinking. Um, this idea that, it, oh man, that we live in a, a culture that's sick. And Clarissa Pinkola Estes talks about it in Women Who Run With the Wolves. And she's got some writing in there about how when when a culture is sick, the people in the culture are sick. And until we heal the culture, we can't heal the people. And the inverse of that is true, too. Like, we have to heal the people in order to heal the culture. And I think that part of the reason that we're feeling this sickness, that we're succumbing to this sickness, that we're not able to heal it. I think this has to do with Omega Wolves. Okay, so hear me out. <laughs> Gotta rewind a little bit and head in a slightly different direction. So about this time last year, I read a book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And if that name sounds familiar to you, but the book does not, uh, you might recognize her her other work, The Warmth of Other Suns, which was hugely popular and concerns the mass migration of Black people in America from the South to the North and the implications of that and the consequences. Um, so she's she is a writer who is able to cast a keen eye on some of the tougher aspects of American history that are, you know, we're just learning how to talk about um, collectively. We're just learning collectively how to talk about, and there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, Again, that's a that's a tangent for another day. But so this book cast compares the racial systems in America to the caste system in India and to the caste system that arose and thankfully quickly fell in Nazi Germany. And it's very informative, especially if you're still somewhat new to looking at history through that lens, through at American history through that lens. One thing that particularly captured my imagination in this book was the passage where she talks about wolves and wolf packs and how our concept of the alpha wolf is based on studies of wolves in captivity and doesn't actually reflect the true pack nature of wolves in the wild. How often the alpha wolf is not the one that bites and snarls, but the one who leads with a calm assuredness and a confidence because the pack needs that wisdom and confidence, and without it, they can quickly succumb to 
you know, the trials and tribulations of nature. But of course, we can't all, we can't all be leaders. We can't all be the alpha wolf. We're not all predisposed to be the alpha wolf. And so there are beta and gamma wolves as well who fulfill various roles. And then there is the omega wolf. And the role of the omega wolf is part scapegoat, part court jester. And that's the wolf that lets off tension, eats last, kind of helps the pack get through the tough times. I'm just, listen, okay, here's what she writes, part of it. The Omega generally eats last and serves as a kind of court jester who acts as an escape valve, often picked on by the other wolves. He bears the brunt of the tensions they face in the wild, where they are subject to attack from predators or from rival packs, and during lean times in the hunt for prey. The Omega acts as, quote, a kind of social glue, allowing frustrations to be vented without actual acts of war, end quote, wrote a wolf conservationist. The Omega is so critical to the pack structure that when a pack loses its Omega, it enters into, quote, a long period of mourning where the entire pack stops hunting and just lays around looking miserable, end quote, as if there were no longer a reason to go on. The loss of an omega can threaten social cohesion and put the entire pack at risk. Depending on the composition of the pack, an omega might not be easily replaced. The new omega would mean an, a demotion for one of the lower to mid-level pack members. Either way, the pack is destabilized. After all, these roles are not artificially assigned based on what an individual wolf looks like, as with a certain other species, but emerge as a consequence of internal personality traits that surface naturally in the forming of a pack. So I read this, and then I read it again, and then I wrote it down, and then I wrote it down by hand, and I couldn't stop thinking about it because her analogy here is that, you know, that we've artificially created Omega Wolves in American culture, in Western culture, um, based on the appearance of a person because of their skin tone, and... I, I just, I couldn't help but think that artists, we've been shirking our duty, stepping into the role of Omega Wolf. And I don't think that there's, you know, it's not a one-to-one -one translation. I'm not suggesting that we need to start adopting wolf pack tactics or roles. That's, you know, we're, that's not going to work. But I do think that we need to start looking to other places that we have not looked before, other inspirations, other models for how to deal with trauma and lean times, and the need for people, the need for beings to sometimes express greater emotions, what we think of as negative emotions, in a way that allows release without provoking actual acts of war. And I think that one of the the unforeseen consequences of a culture that honors the sequel and the prequel and the revival and nostalgia, so much nostalgia, is that we are not able to honestly look at our past and we're not able to honestly and creatively envision our future. And if we as artists are able to take up the role of Omega Wolf, the role of the court jester, the role of someone who is able to hold up a mirror to society and to the people in that society, and point out the foibles and flaws, and then imagine a way to go forward. 
and communicate all of that in an interesting and imbibable way, a way that can be taken in and understood. We need those people. And we need those people to be brave. I try to talk to my kids about bravery a lot, um, in part because I really understand why my mom always made us find a way down if we found a way up, you know, to the tree or the jungle gym or whatever. But it's a practice of learning bravery. And you really can't be brave unless you're scared. So we need to start looking at the scary topics and be brave in how we're saying them, how we're framing them, offering them up for people who are not artistically predisposed or who need a break from being the artist. We need to, well, we need to be finding a different way through. Because if we keep imagining dystopic futures, we're going to keep getting dystopic futures. And that's not to say that we need to be marching around with a sense of false positivity and like painting everything with a bright brush. But, you know, that we, like, if we want a way out of, you know, pick your poison, pick your world happening, pick your local devastation. Like, if we want a way out of this, you know, if, it's going to be a lot more than doing different plays. But doing plays, making art, visual art, writing words that talk about the times that we're in, even if we're talking about the, the current times, but framing it as, I don't know, a novel about Victorian orphans. Like we can still be honestly examining the themes and needs of our times without burying ourselves in nostalgia and false answers that just that come at the sweeping destruction of the world around us. If you are someone who has specific gifts that you can give the world and those gifts are artistic and you're feeling like, oh, because blah, blah, money, blah, blah, time. I can't, I can't, I can't. Like we, we have to move beyond that. And I understand that, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you just drop everything and commit your life to being a person who is starving, but making raw, honest art. Okay, that's, you know, that's not necessary. <laughs> that's, I think the first art is the care of the self, the care of one's home, the care of one's corner, but doing it artistically, doing it beautifully, doing it morally that's where we start have to start being brave we have to well we have to start creating new rituals and this is this is a little tough because there are plenty of rituals that serve us but i think we have to start being really honest with how they serve us and what our actual needs are I was talking to another friend recently. I've, I've had a lot of really delicious conversations lately, but this one was with a friend, Shannon, and we were talking about this need for new rituals. And she said that, I'm not exactly sure where she came up with these ideas. I know she's been listening to Rob Bell and Kristen Hankey a lot lately, and it, this might've come from their, from their work um, and their conversations with each other. But this idea that we need rituals for our times and our culture that are not 
based in harmful practices that are not steeped in patriarchy and capitalism in its negative forms and um, and all of the structures that have gotten us kind of mired into the mess that we're in right now. We don't need to be polishing those up and trying to make them fit the new age. And we don't need to be taking healthy rituals from healthy cultures and trying to adapt them for our sick culture. We need to be making rituals for our sick culture that will help our sick culture heal. And that includes the culture of our home and the culture of ourselves and the culture of our families. Something that I keep returning to again and again, and I'm fairly certain I've brought it up on the podcast before, but it's this Venn diagram from Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who's a climate scientist and used to be one of the co-hosts of, oh my gosh, what is it called? How to Save a Planet, which is another podcast that's pretty good. I liked it more when she was on it just because I love her voice. Uh, she does an excellent interview on the Ologies podcast with Allie Ward. Anyway, this idea that she had is this this Venn diagram of three circles. And she's talking about climate change. For me, it just, it's helped me think about my life and what I can contribute to my community. So three circles. One circle is what brings you joy. Another circle is what are you good at? And the last circle is what needs to be done. And so I think, I hope to you it's obvious how that applies to climate change, but I think it can also apply to artistry. And and I mean artistry here, like, yes, of course, I mean the visual arts, I mean performance arts, all of that, the traditional arts, but I also mean, yes, homemaking, housekeeping, family making, the art of doing your job well, whatever that job is. So these three circles, what do you love, what are you good at, what needs to be done? And what is the center point in there where you're doing that and you're doing it bravely? And in that, recognizing that you bravely doesn't mean every day. It might mean every day, but it might also mean that some days you have to be brave and say no and go take a nap. Very much an advocate of naps here. But I just started a new term of this program called the Midwives. And it's, there's the big group. And then within the big group, there are, there are several smaller groups, circles. And in, in each circle, each person has a midwife that is responsible for helping them bring a project into the world or find their artistic voice or something like that. And then you're also acting as a midwife for another person for an artist. So you have your midwife and you have your artist and the whole circle is connected. And I was talking to my midwife recently and he and Paul said something that I I had felt but hadn't really been able to articulate which is just that some days at the end of the day all you've gotten is a little bit better at surviving. And that's okay. That's actually important that some days you just get a little bit better at surviving. So I was thinking about that and thinking about the midwives and thinking about all these thoughts of, you know, building community and being brave in artistry. And and it occurred to me that we, you know, in order to do this, in order to have this braveness, we do kind of have to set up a bit of a, a circle for ourselves. On one hand, where are we giving support outside of ourselves? 
we have our own things that we lead, even if that's just, you know, your morning routine. That's the only time of day you're a leader. That's okay. Where are you supporting other leaders? And in this particular conversation that we're having, that I'm shouting at you, um, what is the artistic bravery that you're supporting? And in turn, how are you allowing yourself to be supported? How are you receiving help? How are you receiving bravery from others? And I, I really do think, and I'm saying this as someone who finds it difficult to ask for help and to accept it. Getting better, but the asking especially, it's tough. But I feel it in myself when I am able to give that support and when I'm able to receive it, I feel that strengthening me. I feel that strengthening my ability to be brave. We're not going to get through this with individualism. And by this, I mean life. But also, you know, again, pick your flavor of crisis. The individual is not going to save it. So we have to all show up and we have to find a way to show up together. And if we're tending to the bravery in our own corner, imagine how much more brave that's going to make the collective. That's going to make everyone all together. And if we're brave in telling truth, if we're brave in helping people overcome trauma and difficult times, if we're putting our out, our, if we're putting our art out there to be the scapegoat and to take the pressure off of people who aren't necessarily born to be in that role, people who can't take that pressure of being the court jester. I think if we all step into our roles a little bit more fully, we're going to be better equipped to heal our culture. Oh, Okay, the last time I recorded this, I said the whole thing, and then I felt like it wasn't, like I hadn't actually said what I wanted to say, in large part because I left out the part about creating new rituals, which really is like ultimately the thing that I want you to take away from this. Like, be brave, make new rituals. Um, I've been thinking pretty obsessively about ritual um, and about community rituals, participatory rituals. I've been thinking pretty heavily about that for the last, gosh, probably like six years, honestly. And I'm giving a workshop on Saturday, October 8th. If you're listening to this in real time, you still have time to set up. And by set up, I mean sign up. The workshop is called Invitation to Play, Facilitating Immersive Community Events. And I'll be talking about some of this stuff and about practicalities of bringing people together and helping them have an experience. Talking about building social lasagna, where there's something a little bit delicious and nutritious for everybody in the dish. And that's being facilitated by the midwives. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And I would encourage you to check out the midwives if you're seeking any sort of support for artistry, any sort of artistry too. But also, you know, come hang out. Come check out my workshop. And if you're like, mm, timing's not right, maybe this isn't quite my subject, but you are interested in talking further about rituals, let me know. 
you know, I love gold stars and I love encouragement. And I have been dabbling with the thought of doing a ritual specific workshop. So if there's any interest in that, let me know. And we'll, we'll see about putting something together. All right, friends, I'm going to leave it at that for now. Lots of stuff in the show notes for you to click on if you want further information or thoughts. And the little bit of homework that I'm leaving you with is really, yes, consider that Venn diagram. What brings you joy? What are you good at? What is needed? And consider where you are giving support and where you are receiving support. And if that, if those two things are in balance. Thank you so much for listening to the 24-Hour Woman podcast. This episode was created and produced by me, Magdalene Sinke, with musical support from Lily Desmond. You can find more of her music on lilydesmond.bandcamp.com. Definitely check it out. She is wonderful. If you like this podcast and want to support my continued work, you can make a donation at, well, here we go. I think it's coffee.com. K-O-F-I. Their shtick is, you know, give a cup of coffee to an artist. So yeah, you can just hop over coffee.com slash Magdalene Zinke. I'll link that. Don't worry. And there you can just provide a little financial support for the work that I'm doing um, so that I can continue doing it. If you want more information about my work, you can find that at magdalenzinke.com or you can follow me for sporadic updates on Instagram at magdalene.zinke. This episode is dedicated to my friend Carolyn. Carolyn, I'm pretty sure this happened at the book club meeting for CAST, but you talked about how in the age of Zoom, people do a very enthusiastic wave at the end, what you call the steamship wave a steamboat wave. And I've noticed that in real life, as well as on Zoom, I do that and other people do that. And now I don't know, do we do the steamboat wave because of the Zoom times? Or do I notice it because you pointed it out? Can't tell. Don't know if I'll ever be able to tell. I don't even know if I waved like that before, before, (laughs) I don't know, July 2020. But now I definitely do. So if you see me and then you say goodbye to me, probably going to get a steamboat wave. And Carolyn, every time I'm thinking of you. Junkyard Productions. Oh, hell, I lost that train of thought. <laughs>